I think in hindsight, it comes back to just keep learning and keep going. Like you just don't give up. The first version's not gonna look like the last version and vice versa. And so I think literally just continuing to go and continuing to try is the key to success. Hey everybody, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Indie Rails. You know, we always introduce our guest as special, but today I want to add a label and introduce our guest as a special, special guest. He's someone I look up to and admire a lot. I'm fortunate to live nearby, so we get to hang out and do fun stuff, talk business and family. He's not our typical guest. He is not a Rails developer, although he has run a Rails app on his system, and he's not even in the Rails industry. So who is he? His name is Matt Smith better known on the internet as MDS. He's a designer, more specifically an interface expert. But more than that, he's a designer in about everything he does from life to family to business, his home, hobbies. He takes a thoughtful, creative approach to it all. So yeah, lots more to get into, but I'm excited to have him on the show today. Welcome to Any Rails, Matt. Oh man, thank you, Jess. I think we could just end it right there. That was such a great intro. <laughs> That was nice. Well, thanks, yeah. man. Yeah, happy to have you on. I appreciate that. It's always fun to do more things with you. Like Jess said, I think we first met probably around 10 years ago. And you were running a web development community in Athens. And I was trying to start a design community in Athens, like a meetup group. And I think the first time we met was like getting lunch. So another guy could pick your brain about how you ran the developer community. Because I I was at, at the time, I was... In Athens, and actually, I don't know if the audience is aware of Jeremy being in Greenville or not, but I was actually considering moving to Greenville because there was like such a big community there of designers yeah. and developers and the co-working space was like vibrant and popping, had the conference going. And I was like, gosh, I need to be a part of this because I was basically just working in my own little hole in Athens and was kind of getting felt stagnant in a lot of different areas and I made the decision to double down on Athens instead of going to Greenville. And that's why I started the design meetup. And that's why I had lunch with you, Jess. So it was kind of interesting how all that started. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. And I was actually, I'd been going to the Atlanta Ruby meetups and I was like, man, I wish there was something like a little closer to home. And it was already like a big established group. And I was thinking like, I'd like to start something a little smaller. So that's how we ended up doing the developer meetup there in Athens. That's funny. And another, this is such a random nerdy thing to say too, but you were running that with Jonathan Wallace, right? Yep. He was with High Groove Studios and then Big Nerd Ranch. So I started that design meetup because I kind of wanted to recreate what I saw that I loved about Greenville. It was a co-working space and the community. And Years later, after two or three different co-working spaces and studio spaces, Jonathan actually was renting a desk at our co-working space. Oh, really? <laughs> Just funny how all that happened and how all that kind of came together. Yeah, you've met quite a few people in that co-working space. Yeah, for sure. So, Matt, some people might be wondering, like, why would we have you on the show and not being a Rails developer and whatever, but you've had a long career and you've done quite a lot with... You might not use this terminology, but like personal branding, marketing of yourself and going from being a designer to being a teacher, to being a course creator, to being a speaker. And I think a lot of people that are listening are in the same category where they want to maybe 
publish a digital product, maybe build their personal brand, or maybe just build their business. And being independent, that's something that I think you've sort of stood on for a long time. And we can go into that too, but being an independent person, consultant, creator, builder, whatever. So maybe we can spend just a few minutes to give people some context of like where you came from. I know you grew up in the South Georgia, small town, ended up coming to Athens to go to UGA, right? Yeah, that's right. And were you studying like design or? So before I came to UGA, I went to a small two-year college in Swainsboro, Georgia. And it's actually a four-year school now, but it's, it was a two-year school, like community college called East Georgia. And I was always like drawing stuff and like a lot of kids just creating stuff and making stuff in the woodworking shop with my dad and just being creative, even though I didn't know that's what I was doing. Later in hindsight, I was like, oh, I've always loved creativity. But there was a professor at East Georgia named Mr. Kalmanson. He was kind of this friendly, somewhat aloof, maybe a little bit eccentric kind of classic art school teacher that just something about the way he taught and the assignments. I I took my first like art class with him at East Georgia and he encouraged me and I learned about art history and paintings and I learned about Salvador Dali for the first time, who's like my one of my favorite painters. And that was kind of like the initial spark of, I would say, like my professional career, because, you know, you're studying in college to become a professional. And I was just sold his classes. I was like, man, I want to do this. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I love painting. I love art. I like making stuff. I like sculpture. I was learning about all these terms and I was just hooked like really early on. And so when I went to UGA, I was naturally like, okay, I'm going to try to get into the art school. I'm going to take drawing classes. I'm going to take printmaking and all these different types of classes. And I wasn't sure where it would go. I just knew that I loved doing it. And they had the major and I'm like, yeah. And then I remember, I don't know if it was my parents or someone was like, maybe you could do graphic design. And I was like, I don't even know what that is. But I did end up finding out what it was and majored in graphic design. And one thing I noticed about myself, just even in my drawing classes and things like that, is that. I was always like a much more of a technical artist. I was gritting off photographs to paint them or something. And I'm like looking at, okay, in block E7, it looks like the triangle is entering halfway through the bottom line. And so I was like, I always approached it from a much more technical mindset. And I don't know if that was like hardwired into me, but that's just kind of like the way that I approached art, even in general. Like I wasn't a great, just natural figure drawer. Some people can just sketch your face and it looks exactly just by doing loose lines and whatnot. And I need to like take a photograph and grid it off and like mathematically break it down in a way. And I guess as I graduated and got out into the real world, I found, oh, I mean, like interface design is a lot more technical and like writing a little bit of code here and there. My first coding language that I ever wrote any code in was ActionScript 2.0, good old Acromedia Flash. Go to and play, go to and stop. Those were like my first two functions. And I I was just copying and pasting stuff. And I think I had like multiple body tags in my HTML to like make it full screen. <laughs> but I was making a bunch of full screen like Flash websites. And that kind of led into the path of like interface and stuff like that. And so you go through college and you're working on this, I guess, graphic design degree. Was the goal to come out and like design websites or did you have any idea at that point? So there wasn't a goal to design websites. I was actually thinking about majoring in painting and drawing before I chose graphic design. And 
I think there was something in me that knew it would be easier to get a job with a graphic design degree versus painting and drawing. If you major in painting and drawing, you're probably on the art track and you need to like get featured in a gallery and you need to start selling paintings. And at the time I was doing charcoal portraits for grandparents, grandchildren. I was doing like, this is like my commission side hustle in college. <laughs> nice. So they would send me a photograph of their grandkids and I would say like, all right, it's 150 bucks per kid. And I would give you a, like a pretty awesome, like charcoal drawing of your grandkids. And at the time I thought I was like, oh my gosh, I'm rich, $150. <laughs> Little did I know I probably could have charged 10 times that and they still would have paid it. And so I did a number of those in college and I was thinking like, I'm about to become like Mr. Commission Extraordinaire and I'm going to just start banging these out. I'm going to go to Oconee County and I know they got money over there. We're going to start like banging out these portraits. So that was literally my mindset in college. Like I had no idea that I was going to be doing websites and stuff. I did have some exposure to that. My mom used to build websites and like Microsoft front page. And I had like some early copies of trying to just screw around in some kind of like WYSIWYG editor. I was really big into doing like AOL chat room stuff back in the day. Probably half your audience won't even know what that is. <laughs> but yeah, I was like writing like links that would turn your computer screen blue, like the sc blue screen of death, like just to troll people. And I was that guy in the chat rooms. Sorry <laughs> for whoever had that happen to them. So I had a, like, a lot of that technical background without really even knowing it. And I think after college and after doing graphic design, my senior project in high school was like a, was a charcoal series of drawings. It wasn't really anything technical. And then I got a job making like websites and logos and stuff right out of college. So it just kind of naturally progressed from there. So from there, what led you to eventually going independent? So when I was hired at my first job out of college, I was hired as a contractor and I kind of knew a little bit about what that meant, but mostly didn't. And once I realized like, oh my gosh, I got to save like 25% of this money to pay taxes and don't have any benefits. Like it was like, okay, this is not as cool as I thought it was. <laughs> so actually my first full-time job, quote unquote, was like not even a full-time job. It was a contract position that was just like full-time hours. So in my mind, I was like, Mr. Big Shot, like, oh, I don't have a full-time job. I'm already a full-time freelancer, even though I had one client and exactly like a nine to five, except worse because I had to pay my own taxes and I had no <laughs> benefits. But in my mind, that perceived freedom was like empowering. I would actively seek out other freelance jobs. I would look for stuff online through word of mouth or people seeing the website that I made for this company would reach out and did a number of branding projects for companies in the cycling industry because that's where this job was kind of like, that was their industry. And then I just kind of kept trying to raise my rates a little bit. Like, oh, this person didn't say no to that number and this person didn't say... And so I just kept doing more projects, not because I had a strategic plan to do so. It's just, that's just kind of how it unfolded for me. And then ultimately I had a recruiter reach out to me from an agency in Atlanta and they did web projects for Home Depot and Coca-Cola and all the big names. And it was kind of like a larger agency and they were short on graphic designers or visual designers. And they had a really strong UX team. And at the time they weren't even called a UX team. They were called IAs. So everybody was an IA back before the term UX came along. And What's I'm an like, IA? information architects. Yeah. Okay. And I'm like, they're doing all these designs, black and white designs in OmniGraffle. And I'm like, I'm not using OmniGraffle. Like I'm diehard Adobe at this point. Although, but I could do these, I could totally create wireframes in Adobe Illustrator. No problem. 
And so that's what I started doing for freelance clients. I'm like, oh, I can do, yeah, I could do like user strategy. And I, I started designing wireframes and then I could also do the UI, eventually taught myself front-end development. So to all of you developers out there, I at least do know front-end code. I can write HTML and CSS with the best of them, or at least with the half of them. <laughs> You've always jumped across that line and dug pretty deep into doing the code and like really pushing the boundaries of CSS and transitions and things like that. I think every web designer goes through the period where they get back some of their first build of their designs. And they're just like, what the heck is this? This is not <laughs> what I designed at all. Like, why does it look like this? Drop shadows are wrong. Colors are wrong. Like, why is the background bleeding through? I didn't have any of this in my... And because naturally, like a lot of early young designers don't have a clue what happens in different scenarios. And so that frustration led me to just... I got to learn this. I'm going to have to learn this so I can know how to speak the language. And I need to be able to know when something's possible and when something's not. So that's really just like out of frustration, either my own naivety or bad front end developers, maybe a little bit of both. It made me want to learn front end code. That reminds me a little bit of Frank Chimeros. He talks about the web being like the grain of the web. Yeah. The grain of the web. Yeah. Fantastic presentation and article, long form post. I actually think about that a lot. Because I also do a lot of like woodworking and stuff like that. And I, I went down this rabbit hole with ChatGPT not too long ago. And it was, I was like questioning, okay, like they used to be two by fours, but now they're inch and a half by three and a half. Like, why is that? And like, I kind of knew, but it's like just getting the deep history and even like understanding like why a hex code is a hex code and why a bit is a bit and how everyone settled on eight bytes it's like a good base number system. And a lot of times just that was what everybody could agree on. And that's why it is what it is. And it's like, oh, okay. And like when you understand two by fours and sheets of plywood, you're going to make certain design decisions knowing the dimensions of those pieces and knowing that it's going to be, you're wasting a lot of the material if you cut like a 27 inch piece of plywood, like you're going to have a lot of scraps. And so I think about that talk and that idea of the grain of the web a lot just in regards to designing, building something out of wood, you can make so many better decisions when you at least have a working knowledge. You don't necessarily have to know how to mill a bunch of two by fours. So I certainly wouldn't know how to do that. You said I could do this. You were talking about Adobe Illustrator doing wireframes and you started like getting clients. When I started out, I was building websites for people. And so that's pretty easy for me to understand like, oh, this business, local business, they need a website. It's easy to sort of sell that and get it. But who needs wireframes? Like, how do you find those clients? I did the same thing. Like I was building client websites in Flash and then I would do some branding projects because I could build and publish my own Flash website without roping in a developer. I worked with this agency in Atlanta and with probably four or five agencies in Atlanta over the span of five years or so. And really learning more about just the strategy that goes into why you put things in a certain place. And up until that point, I was like, oh, I just, I literally thought everyone was just like an HTTP cowboy, just throwing stuff up on the FTP server. Like, and just look good here. And this pushing it live, there. like index.html. Let's go, just upload it FTP. And then when I was exposed to the agency world, like doing this professionally for big brands, I'm like, oh my gosh, there is such thought going into these websites. Oh, this is a real legitimate thing. And these companies are paying like big bucks for this. I never didn't take it seriously, but it was like another light bulb moment. And so when I was working at all these different agencies, I was always trying to communicate really well because I was working remotely back in 2009, 2010 before 
was even really a buzzword. So I was always trying to be like the project manager's best friend. They always had a finger on the pulse of what I was working on because I would tell them every single day. I wouldn't like flake out on them because it was also like much better money than my previous job. I was like, I'm not screwing this up. So I'm going to be like on the spot on everything. And because of that, I guess word spread. And so like a lot of the different project managers would want me on their team because they're like, oh my gosh, you can't have Matt because he's on my team. We're doing this project. (laughs) And which is a great position to be in. And so I kind of rode that wave for three to four years and built up a big network inside of that kind of Atlanta agency network. And then going to conferences and meeting other people and just kind of like getting involved in the community in more ways. Ultimately, that led to people leaving those agencies to go start their own venture back startup or going to work for a startup and they needed some design help. A lot of startups will start out with full-time developers, but not a full-time designer. And so I was able to be the recommendation for, okay, we have this somewhat functioning app. How can we turn it into a great user experience? How can we make it look great? How can we design the app icon and maybe the marketing website? And so I was able to kind of come in and be the guy who did all of that for the startups after I kind of built up the rapport within that agency world for three or four years. They wouldn't necessarily come and ask for wireframes. They're asking for like, we need our app designed. There wasn't really like a formal UX training school you could go to. Now you can get like a degree in human computer interactions and You can go to boot camps and everything, but at the time it was all still really new. So I just kind of developed my own bit of a process and I just ranked it based on like, all right, is this a low, medium or high complexity project? And it can be like low, medium, high in terms of team size or in terms of feature set. And so if it was like really low, we could just jump right into design and we start playing around and it was kind of low stakes because it wasn't that complicated. And I was maybe just talking to one person. But if there was a lot of people involved or if the functionality was really complicated, and this was also right around the time when mobile first was even like a big push. Luke Robluski was like a big name in the mobile first world. And this is probably 10 years ago. So I was like, yeah, we can design mobile first wireframes. And basically it was me selling this idea to that stakeholder at that startup or whatever. I'm like, if we design wireframes, I try not even use wireframe as a terminology anymore. There is some residual like gag reflex to that term in some people's (laughs) minds because a lot of people see it as a waste of time and it definitely can be. I prefer the term low fidelity design now because I have seen a lot of wireframes that are just like you could have done that in a Word document. You literally wasted time drawing these boxes. But when I did these wireframes and the low fidelity designs, I was imagining this becoming an interface. It was like a really polished nice design, but I'm mostly focusing on typography and layout. And we're avoiding color conversations. We're avoiding font conversations. We're avoiding a lot of conversations so that we can truly decide, is this a good functionality? Is this screen good to show once you sign up? And should we require all of this information up front or should we ask for it afterwards? And I could bang these wireframes out really quickly, especially if it was mobile first. And then me, the stakeholder and the developer could all look at it at the end of the day and be like, yeah, this is actually, looks like a pretty good flow. We'll start building that to match what you've designed. It's like, okay, great. And it kind of gets everyone on the same page. And that would be my sales pitch as well. I would pitch that exact process to these stakeholders. And sometimes depending on like my rate or their budget or whatever, sometimes it would only be wireframes that I'm delivering. And it would just be like the developer and the stakeholder were like, this was fantastic. Like we, we covered so much. We answered so many questions. 
Because a lot of times just nailing down the exact functionality is going to help out the development team way better than working on some like pie in the sky UI buttons. And if you're just designing what a button might look like, it's not a bad use of time necessarily, but in terms of prioritizing the app's functionality, well, the designers doesn't have anything to do. So just let them design a couple of buttons. If I could summarize you would probably look back and say that you spent three or four years at a pretty good agency and you made the most of it. You put in a lot of hard work, you put in high quality work, did the best job you could, made a lot of connections, went to conferences, and then you developed your own identity and your stamp on things. You had a process that you felt very passionate about. I'm like, this is the way I want to do it. Yeah, exactly. And then did you just quit the design agency one day or how did that process work? I was with one agency for about a year or two and I became one person on a four person team that was like handling this big account for Yahoo. And Yahoo would sell all of these like custom websites for BlackBerry and BMW just because they had Yahoo people, Yahoo News. And that was like so much traffic. And this was like Twitter was maybe two or three years old. Facebook was still like pretty young. And so there wasn't a lot of competition in that kind of like business world for internet traffic. So we had a year account with them and I was guaranteed like at least 20 hours a week. And it was actually more than enough to pay all of the bills that I currently had. So I had another 20 hours where I could go try to find more work. I could experiment with things, work on side projects. And I ended up building a real estate showcase application with a friend and just a a bunch of random little projects that worked kind of dried up. But then there was a few other agencies that I would go and do periodic work for. But at the same time, I was also finding newer startup clients to work for. And so I got to the point where I was finding like three or four big projects per year after the agency stuff that was enough to sustain the independent uh, status. Don't get me wrong. It was not easy. And it's it might sound like, oh, it was just like no big deal. I was just designing stuff. It was super cool. I've got four kids now oldest is 16, youngest is nine. And we had all of our kids during this amount of time. There were plenty of times where I was freaking out about where the next job was going to come from, where the next paycheck was going to come from, spending too much time on personal project and burning too much cash and being like, oh my gosh, I need to get on the phone or the email and start selling stuff now. But I mean, through all of that, I did just kind of slowly transition from agency stuff to doing more mobile apps and desktop apps and just apps in general. And and I kind of like had this tried and true process where it's like, all right, we'll figure out the functionality with some wireframes. And once everybody's good with that, then we'll jump right into the UI. And there was plenty of other clients that was like, it was not that complicated. It's just a couple of us. I'll just jump right into design. And funny enough though, like I never regretted doing the wireframes on a project, but there were plenty of times where I regretted not doing it (laughs) just because I felt like the process that I used you were able to make so many more decisions quicker. I wasn't writing up a bunch of documentation and like beating a dead horse with a stick, just designing wireframes over and over and over. We were trying to make good decisions. And a lot of times you can't make a good app decision until you can kind of see it and visualize it. And sometimes it's quicker to just option drag stuff across the screen and change a little bit of content, draw some arrows and kind of get a bird's eye view of everything. Sometimes that's quicker than coding up the entire thing. Maybe not nowadays, you could question whether or not that is. But if you're trying to innovate, sometimes it can be. 
Yeah, I can say as a from a developer standpoint, it's so much easier to have some screens and flow and say, oh, this is how this is supposed to work. Yeah. And you can say, here's step one, step two. Oh, this has this form. This has this data. If you're just kind of building on the fly, then it's you end up getting yourself into a corner. Yeah. And I think that's where the disagreement comes from people who are like anti-wireframe and people who are pro-wireframe. I think my goal with designing low fidelity was always to like, let's get everyone on the same page and let's get some unity happening here between the developer, the stakeholder and the design side. That way, once we all get on the same page, we all have the same expectations and we're all aligned and we can all build much faster. And so that was kind of my goal was like, let's get something really cool designed and everyone get aligned on it and not design and develop in our own separate cages. And then all of a sudden, well, we developed it like this. Well, we designed it like this. And then you're just like fist fighting (laughs) over which one's better. Okay, Matt. So you've told us about getting into consulting and and building that practice, but you've gone from being the consultant to being a teacher, being speaker, being a course creator, and being an authority sort of in this industry. How did you start going from like, I'm the person doing this, I'm going to be the person who's teaching this? It's funny thinking about it right now. I think everything that you just said is more of a byproduct of what I was actually doing versus what I was trying to do. As I would go to conferences, I would think to myself, that would be kind of cool to speak at a conference. So I started trying to find places that I might be able to speak. And it was started off small and did bigger stuff. And then it just kind of progressed from there. I kind of always had some sort of an affinity for teaching. I remember even back in college when I was like learning Photoshop in my design classes and I'm like over there doing stuff and I'm like, oh, I see the teacher like adding extra like selection to his already existing selection. I'm like, wait, how did you just do that? And he's like, oh, you just hold the shift key and then you like add more and you hold option to like take it away. And I was like, oh my gosh. And so like I was on a mission to let all of my classmates know like, oh, did you know that you could hold your, (laughs) and I just, I found such like joy in sharing the good news of the lasso tool. I would see some of my classmates like doing something in a way that I realized was inefficient and try to like hey, did you know there's a way that you can do it? And I was never trying to be pushy with it, but I just always really enjoyed sharing knowledge. So along my career, when I was like dabbling in speaking at different conferences, and I was also like like a lot of us, very active on Twitter, at least reading and like posting the occasional troll tweet or something. This is actually right before I met you, Jess. Like I had this idea, like I started a blog and I started writing because everybody back in the day was like, you got to have a blog. You got to write your own content. And if you want to be authoritative in any way, you know, it's good to have your own stuff published on your own website. So I was like, well, that sounds good to me. I'll do that. And I just started blogging and started writing, started having ideas and I would put them down, share them on Twitter. If it resonated with people, I might write more about it on my blog. And at the time I posted to Dribble, posting to Twitter, writing on my blog, speaking at some stuff. If you do enough bench press, your max press will increase. You know what I mean? It's kind of just like basic science, I guess. I think that's ultimately what happened is I just kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And then at a certain point, I was like, all right, I feel really strongly about this like wireframing process that I have with Illustrator. If it was a bigger client and they needed fancy documentation, I remember one of the first big projects, I was leading this like museum companion app for Wells Fargo. And I was dealing with the Wells Fargo brand team and the Wells Fargo like design team. But for whatever reason, they had used this agency 
And this agency was basically letting me do like 100% of the work. And I was like, all right. Normally I was only doing the UI design, but I let them know, hey, I could do both. Like I've been doing this for, because after I stopped doing agency work and did more app work, there was the occasional agency project that popped up and I was like, found a good time. So I would do it. And this was one of those times. So I did all the wireframes and then I put it into this InDesign template, which is like traditionally used for like magazine layout and things like that. And I made this wireframing template package and I put it in Illustrator and InDesign. I was like, I wonder if people would like be interested in this. And I tweeted a few screenshots and somebody was like, oh, you should charge for that. And I was like, hmm, maybe I should charge for this. And so I signed up for Gumroad and put together these like templates and sold it for like $9. And I was selling it from a blog post. And it would just link to like the Gumroad overlay. And like within a year, I made a thousand bucks. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is freaking crazy. Can you believe it? I didn't even have to work for that money. It will just went into my bank account. So shortly after that, 2013, 2014, I was like, I think I heard about this one guy making a course. And like, he wrote a blog post about it where he like made 80 grand in a day or something. I was like, oh my gosh, like I got to get in on that. <laughs> and I was like, this is perfect. I love teaching enjoy like putting together these kits. And so like that was when I created my first course in 2015. And Jess, you were a part of that as well, because we built a little bootstrapped LMS together. And I somehow convinced you to work on that with me. (laughs) What was that course? So that course was geniusly called AI UX, which stood for Adobe Illustrator User Experience. And so I had like AIUX.co or something. It wasn't, .com wasn't available. This was just created because I wanted to share it. And if I would have like truly taken a smart business approach, I definitely would have changed a lot of what I was doing. I mean, it was moderately successful. It wasn't enough to replace my income, but it was definitely like I made enough money that I could not do a client project instead of that. Yeah, I object. I think it was pretty successful. (laughs) Beat my expectations. And I was Yeah, I mean, it was. It was really cool to see you put this time and effort into something and I mean, you don't do anything half-hearted, but you put a lot of time and effort into it and it could have either flopped and you wasted a bunch of time or it could have took off and it did pretty well. I totally agree. And I take that back. There was some immediate financial success, which was great, but I think it ultimately laid the groundwork for where I'm at now because I learned so much during that year, really got much better at front-end development as well because I was doing all the front-end development on our little app and Jess was doing all of the back end. Jess actually taught me how to use Git in the terminal on that project. And to this day, I still use GitHub the way Jess taught me. <laughs> That's awesome. I know how to do Git status, Git add, Git commit, Git push. I'm good. That's all I yeah. know. And that's all I need. <laughs> that's awesome. If I need to like make a branch or something, I just got to Google it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or chat GPT now. Exactly. Yeah, that's definitely true. Also went like crazy deep down the internet marketing wormhole. And that is a deep, dark web. If you go down like the depths of internet marketing, like funnels and lead magnets and all this stuff. And I just got immersed in like writing copy and writing sales copy. And I started listening to podcasts on sales and listening to books and just all these resources on like sales and teaching and psychology behind what makes people buy and things like that. So that was like very, very pivotal 
project for where I'm at now. And, and it was definitely in the beginning of all that, even though I was hoping for something bigger, it was definitely a building block for sure. It validated your idea. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. But I think I spent more time writing the front end code of that app that we built than I did creating the actual course. Oh, wow. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Sometimes I'll pull up the old files and be like, man, we could have potentially turned that into a thing. I think we thought about that, tinkered around with that idea for a while. Yeah, it was a pretty cool design. How long did that project take to get off the ground? It sounds like you're not just creating the course content. You're doing all this marketing and promotion, teaching yourself how to do all the sales and marketing stuff and building this app to manage it all. That's when I first bought my like first proper microphone. I was using my computer's webcam and like a decent microphone, not even an interface, just plugged straight in USB. The quality is actually still pretty good. Like surprisingly, I still have that mic. So I was teaching myself video editing, how to speak to a camera because it's all very nuanced and very difficult if you don't know what you're doing. And so I definitely had to kind of Frankenstein together a bunch of different skills to pull it off. Even if a lot of them were old rusty Frankenstein parts, it was still there. <laughs> but yeah, it was a big kind of shift in my thinking for all that. Did it take months to do this? We probably worked on this for off and on for six months to a year easily because Jess and I were both doing client projects. Sometimes I'd have to take a month or two break and tinker with it here or there. So not only was I trying to record a bunch of videos, but I was also designing and building out the front end for the app and editing, just realizing how many times I made a weird mouth sound and I actually <laughs> learned what the audio spike looked like and I knew where to cut it out. And I'm like, oh my gosh, so it's just like so much work. But I want to say that it was most of 2015. I think I launched the beta in like December of 2015 or something like that. I was thinking about it as I was kind of looking over your, all the stuff that you do nowadays, and we haven't talked about it yet, but Shift Nudge is your big product. It seems like that's the main focus of what you're doing. And I was thinking, how did he go all the way to Shift Nudge? And it sounds like AI UX was maybe the stepping stone and, into and, that. And pre-AI UX was that wireframing with Illustrator and InDesign kit. And actually kept doing client work after AI UX, but had the itch and I had the taste of somewhat of a like internet product success. It might not be a forever lasting meal, but it was like, it sure tasted good. And I want some more of it. And so I did two different workshops at Adobe Max the year or two after that. And one of them was like an intro to icon design. And I wrote this big workshop for that to go to San Diego and do that at Adobe Max. But then I realized like, oh, this is all my content. I should just turn this into a course. And I just was like, I'm just going to make a free course. I don't want to do a big thing. I'll just make intro to icons.com. And it's actually still up quite outdated, but people still get on there and learn how to make icons in Adobe Illustrator. And then eventually I added some sketch videos as well. And now I should probably go back and redo it all in Figma. But it was like, okay, that was another example of getting better at doing video, getting better at writing a block of content that would teach somebody to have a tangible result at the end of going through that learning process. And then around the same time, Envision was kind of a big deal. I know that recently you guys might've saw the like, they're sunsetting all the Envision stuff now and they're kind of like closing down as a company. Back then they were like poised to like take over. Like Figma wasn't big yet. And I think they were even, I think I heard whispers of them trying to either acquire Sketch. And eventually they came out with Envision Studio because they had the Sketch plugin for a long time. And so they came out with Envision Studio 
And I had several different contacts there and they started this thing called Designer Fund where they would just give someone a grant to do something cool with Envision. And so I was like, well, why don't I make a studio course and I will write a proposal. So I submitted it to them and through a few string pullings here and there, got it approved. And it was like a pretty big project. I think at the time it was like, I don't know, somewhere between 40 and 60 grand, like a pretty big project. I was going to call it Learn Studio, learnstudio.com. And I'd actually already bought a lot of those domains because I was always like, oh, this would be a good name for a course. I actually still own, I think, learnfigma.com. Nice. Oh, wow. I never did anything with it. And I think their legal team would shut me down if I tried to use that. Maybe so. Maybe so. <laughs> I think I might have let it expire. I don't know. I don't remember. But that was another example. Like, okay, now I'm going to create another course. So this is like my third video course. And also like, in between all of this, I started doing tutorials on YouTube to get better. And I, I went through like a vlogging phase where I was like super into Casey Neistat vlogs. And so I was like, I'm going to create vlogs like that too. My wife will love me carrying the camera around all the time <laughs> talking to it. Said with the most sarcasm you've ever heard. I hear that. But all of that, I learned more about like timing and video editing and things like that. And then I did the switch to studio. They wanted it to be called switch to studio. And I was like, ah, I guess... I didn't really want to convince people to switch to Studio, maybe learn it. And actually only half those videos got released because they had so many issues with Studio. My Studio shut down a long time ago, but and it was kind of brutal to even make that course because Studio would freeze up a bit while I was recording and I would have to like piece it all together and make it look like it didn't. So get pretty good at smoke and mirrors when you're video editing. After the studio stuff, I started toying around with, man, I really want to create like a new brand that I can put everything under. One of the things we, we didn't talk about, we don't need to go into too much detail unless you want to, but I released a library of like resizable arrows called FlowKit that I created for Sketch. And I later made a library for Figma. And this was like before plugins were even really a thing in Figma. And it just allowed people like me and designers to like quickly lay out like user flows and diagrams and stuff. And so I used to sell this on useflowkit.com. Now it's an actual Figma plugin that you can use. And then also I made this app with Sam Sophus, who's used to be big in the Ruby community, I think, yeah, or like yeah. somewhat big. I have seen him around lately, but Ruby. yeah, for a long time. He yeah, has. he's been living the van life and That's right. kind of early quasi-retired, kind of not really. So he and I built an app called Contrast, where you could check Contrast scores from the toolbar. And then me and another guy turned that into a Figma plugin. So I, I had built up some like muscle memory of building a product and launching it, building a product and launching it, make a little website out of it and either doing it for free, which is like low stakes or charging money for it, which is like the scariest thing you've ever done in your life. And like, you're holding your finger over like, oh my gosh, I'm <laughs> going to publish this. Like I'm about to get torn to shreds on Twitter. But I think through all of that, I was like, I want to come up with a new, like a good brand that doesn't have anything to do with a piece of software. Because I think that was my biggest mistake with AI UX is put all of my eggs in the Adobe Illustrator basket. And as soon as I launched that course, Sketch became like just dominated the UI world. And I was using Sketch all the time. I would do my wireframes and Illustrator and then my UI designs and Sketch. And somewhere along the way, I was like, this seems inefficient. And for a while, I even tried UI design in Illustrator and it was like, ah, so I was like, I'm never going to, I might do some free courses for software specific or very niche type stuff. But if I create a new big design course, I want it to be 
software agnostic. So that doesn't become an issue. And I also want to teach the fundamentals, like the building blocks behind everything. That way, if ChatGPT, AI this, and if Figma gets bought by Adobe or they don't, it doesn't matter. Like design fundamentals are not going to change. And so that is ultimately what led to me creating Shift Nudge. Shift Nudge was kind of like a combination of all of that backstory in one, really. And for those that don't know who Shift Nudge is, can you just give like a 30-second sales pitch and brag on it a little bit? Shift Nudge is the premier online learning experience for learning how to design beautiful and functional interfaces. Yeah, I think that's legit. Brag a little bit about who are the typical people who purchase this program. It started off like just individuals, like people that knew me on Twitter that were on my email list that would buy the course. But then eventually I started selling like team plans. Figma has a team plan. QuickBooks, Pentagram, like a premier branding design. Like we, I studied Pentagram and graphic design on my tests. And now I'm having a meeting with them because they want to buy seats in Shift Nudge to teach their brand designers like product design, interface design, because there's a little bit of a gap. And like just literally having my mind blown all the time. I cannot believe this. And I've had 10 or 12 designers from the Major League Baseball organization. There's a lot. There's been a lot of teams that have bought seats and there continues to be a lot of like individuals that are just looking to break into the design world. And even people that like go through a UX boot camp, a lot of those people also come to Shift Nudge because it's like, I learned about theory and I learned about the double diamond process, whatever that is, but I don't actually know how to make anything necessarily. Like I can write a user story maybe, but, and I think that comes back to the way I always viewed wireframes. Like I wanted something tangible that we could degree on and push things forward. And so that was my approach with creating the curriculum for Shift Nudge as well. It wasn't fluffy theory. It was like, all right, typography. Here's how you choose your font size. This is why you choose your font size. This is how you can differentiate the hierarchy between font sizes. And sometimes you don't need a different font size. Sometimes you can just go bold and regular. And this is how you do bold versus regular. You don't want to go this way. You want to go this way. And so like all those nerdy details that make something look really good that's kind of what Shift Nudge does is break down all of those details from typography, layout, color, and then it goes into like style and imagery and so on and so forth. It goes all the way back to your drawing of mapping things out and that's breaking right. it down exactly. inch by inch, right? That's right. And this is a comprehensive course. It's not something you take in an afternoon or even a week. There are about 80 something lessons. Every lesson has about a 20 minute video associated with it. And every lesson also has probably anywhere from 500 to 1500 written words that goes along with it. There's downloadable Figma files, downloadable sketch files. There are code pins embedded into the thing that I'm not trying to teach front-end development, but I also want designers who learn from me to understand. This is why you should do this because this is how the flow of HTML works. And you need to be really aware of this when you're designing. And so if you were to do six lessons per week, it would take you 12 weeks to go through every single lesson. You present the course as a cohort, right? Yeah. So I have been doing like cohort launches where I'll do, I started off doing two per year. And then in the last couple of years, I've done three per year. I don't know which one's better. Honestly, I'm not sure. And it's pretty much like on demand. It doesn't necessarily have to be a cohort, but I found that it's like, everybody's excited to get started together and Opening and closing the enrollment period for two weeks makes it like way easier for me to manage 
the questions and the support and generating invoices and just anything under the sun that you can imagine that might happen while you're trying to sell a bunch of stuff and people are making big purchase decisions. I need my employer to sign off on this. Could I get an extension? And and I'm lenient with stuff like that. But if it was always open, I think the demand would also be smaller, I think, because if it's always available, then it wouldn't be as exciting to be a part of it. And also like it would just take my two or three weeks of intense work and it would dissipate it across the entire year. And the freedom that I enjoy to work on new things and being able to go heads down on a new problem would get very disruptive, disrupted with all of that extra admin work. I have hired someone since I first started to handle support and things like that to help me out. And that helps a ton. But the cohort model still seems to be the way to go. And I've recently added where I'll do like six live Zoom sessions where people can submit their work and we'll all jump on a Zoom and we'll just deconstruct a bunch of designs and they can ask questions and sub- and submit stuff. And that's been really fun to do as well. And that kind of makes the cohort model work a little more smoothly too when there's a live component. It's not required that you show up for those, but it kind of helps out. I remember talking to you at one point during the process of you creating Shift Nudge and it just felt like you had been recording and editing videos for a year. Yeah. It probably <laughs> was that long. I started working on the Shift Nudge outline and the curriculum in like 2018. It was actually called Shift and Nudge to start with. And I signed up for an Instagram account, Shift and Nudge, still live. And then I think I used the wrong email or somehow I got locked out of the account. I couldn't get back in. And I'm like, shit. So I was like, I guess I'm going to switch it to Shift Nudge. And so I went and re-signed up as Shift Nudge. And then I re-signed up on Twitter as Shift Nudge. And just it became Shift Nudge because of that Instagram debacle. But it's way better than Shift and Nudge. Kind of like the Facebook or Facebook. Drop the and, it's clean. Yeah. But you're right. When I had the outline of the curriculum, there was originally only four modules and half of them were visual and half of them were like user experience stuff. And I was going to try to do it all, UX and UI. And then... I was sharing the curriculum and the outline with a bunch of different people getting their feedback on it early on. And I remember this one lady told me that actually worked in our co-working space. She was like, I've got friends who are UX designers and they wouldn't really care too much about the UX stuff. So you may want to consider only doing the UI because that would appeal to a broader audience because not everyone's looking for both. And I was like, kind of right. And then when I started developing the curriculum more, I'm like, gosh, I don't think it makes sense to turn a lesson on line height and kerning in the same course where you're talking about user research and flows and like more high level type terms and customer segmentation. It just feels like two separate worlds. And also hired, I don't know if he's the director or a director of continuing education at Clemson to review my work and my outline and give me his thoughts just from a teaching aspect. And so I paid him as a consultant to like consult on the material. He was the one that he suggested that I added more starting material, like getting started and framing everything. And so I was like, oh, I had like one video I was going to do that on. Here's how everything works. All right, let's jump right in. I actually cut half the curriculum out that was all UX related. I did a three-day workshop on all of that material. And I was like pretty much sold on putting it in the course. And then eventually I was just like, I got to get rid of this. Like maybe I'll table it for another course or another day because now it just gave me so much more room to expand on nuances of layout and all these really, really nerdy details of design. And it just somehow hit a really nice sweet spot where 
developers who are building their own apps want to get better at design and they don't want to hire a designer. If they want to do it themselves, they got the time, they're a good candidate for the course. People who are breaking into design and don't know anything about it, or some people who are like, I've been a product manager and I've been doing this for a decade. And I just want to get my hands dirty. I'm ready to start actually building stuff. So it appeals to all these adjacent people in it. And even like seasoned designers that are like, I just haven't been doing new stuff. I've been kind of doing the same old thing, or we've been working the same design system for six years and I feel rusty and I want to get like some more fresh works for those people as well. So I didn't really purposefully position it like that, but I kind of got there because I was getting so much feedback early on before I even started, which I did not do with AI UX in any way. And I ran a survey to my email list. It was like 10,000 people at the time. And I listed out four different courses and was like, which one of these sounds like the most appealing? And the majority of people wanted a nitty gritty UI design detail course. And I think 30% or so wanted like a product design all about user experience stuff. And I, for a long time, I thought I would do a, a UX course next. And I guess it's still like potentially on the table, but I feel like I've hit like a really good vein with Shift Nuds as it is. And I've been building it up and adding more content and, and more resources just around exactly what it is and kind of keeping it simple. I like to move on to the next thing and just make something new. So it was kind of a hard thing for me to pump the brakes on creating just another new course. Shift Nudge has been your full-time thing now for, was it been three years? I did my last big client project in the summer of 2019. And I launched the Shift Nudge beta in December of 2019. And then I was planning to do my big wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, launch public in spring of 2020. And as everyone might recall, things were a little dicey during that time of year. You had COVID, you had George Floyd protests, cancel culture was at its peak. And I'm like, there's no way that I'm going to launch something and charge $1,000 or more and then try to promote it online and be that guy during that time. But at the same time, I had said no to a lot of client projects during that time. So I was like kind of freaking out a little bit. And then after a day or two of like deliberation, it was probably more like a week or two. I was like, I need to sell this again, or I need to do client work. And so I wrote like an extremely personal, somewhat salesy email to my existing list, to people that had already signed up for the beta that didn't buy it before. And I was like, I know like things are crazy right now, but if you find yourself at home and you want to get better at this particular skill, this is going to be available to you. Like I will personally review your designs. I will help you get better. You've got all this content. Don't know if I had it all like completely edited. I had like half of it published and the other half was coming. And I was nervous. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'll, I'll just see what happens. I'm going to send this email, send an email saying, I'm going to either close it down after a hundred people sign up or I'm going to close it down after a week. And to my surprise, a hundred more people signed up for it on the second beta round. And that, that kind of just gave me a lot more of an encouraging, oh my gosh, like I can't believe this worked again. Like I sold another hundred spots. And I was selling each spot for $997 or like six payments of $99, something like that. And so like worked a second time for the beta thing. Then I was able to like, okay, I think I launched publicly in August of 2020, which was still a little bit tumultuous, but it wasn't quite as heated as the spring and ended up changing a few little things before the launch. I was going to say, in hindsight, it may have worked out pretty well, COVID, because of people being at home, getting the stimulus checks, 
100% think that it was net positive for sure for specifically for my business. I mean, it's kind of a morbid thing to say in light of everything that happened in 2020. But if we're only talking about shift nudge, it was a positive thing. But also like, I didn't know. I, I was also just like scared. I don't want to get COVID. I don't want my kids to get COVID. Is there going to be a vaccine? Should we do the vaccine? You know, like so much going around and my kids are doing virtual and my kindergartner is trying to figure out how to do Zoom. I'm like, this is stressful. And I'm trying to like launch this course. One thing that I didn't mention also, which is not really that relevant, but in late 2019, like my dad was in the hospital for two months, almost on his deathbed, ended up recovering, but I was driving back and forth from Athens to Augusta trying to release the first beta version. And I was like, as if this wasn't hard enough to just get out into the world. Now I've got to, you know, do this too. And so there was a lot of literal blood, sweat, and tears went into creating this thing. I think that just echoes that business is hard. And like most of the time, success is not easily found. And a lot of hard work, blood, sweat, and tears goes into it. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think in hindsight, it comes back to just keep learning and keep going. Like you just don't give up, keep pushing it. And I just knew that I wanted to push this out. And the first version is not going to look like the last version and vice versa. And so I think literally just continuing to go and continuing to try is the key to success. I think that's cool. I, I remember reading a tweet just a few days ago. I think Jason Freed posted, I can't remember the way he worded it, but it said something like, forget all business strategy. The number one business strategy is don't go out of business. Like just keep trying, keep going. Exactly. Vasalo teaches that in small bets too, right, Jeremy? He, he said, the goal is don't go out of business. Right. Yeah. Avoid the game over scenario. Yeah. Yeah. When you're like a month away from running out of cash, you make decisions a lot differently than you do if you've got a year of runway in the bank. Even with design and development, you're like dreaming up all these features and you're having all these conceptual discussions, but nothing beats like building something and clicking around and moving your browser around and like actually sending it to someone and being like, would well, you use this? It's so much more simple and brute force in a lot of ways is kind of keep it simple and just push forward. I don't know where I heard this, but I think I might've heard it on the My First Million podcast. They were talking about these two groups of people who were trying to build bridges. And there was like one group that was brilliant mathematicians, brilliant physicists, and they were trying to calculate and design the perfect bridge. And they spent like a year or two trying to conceptualize it. But this other group was not that smart and they just started building bridges. And by the time that year had passed, this not as smart tribe had built like 500 bridges and 400 of them had failed. And the smart, really smart people had only built one and it failed. But the not as smart people who had built 500 bridges had like way better bridges like a year later because they just kept building and kept learning. Okay, that didn't work. Let's try something else. Okay, that didn't work. Let's try something else. That sounds a lot like the marshmallow test. Have y'all ever heard that? Yeah. You try to build a, is it a bridge or tower with marshmallows? And they gave it to a group of adults. And then they gave it to a group of kids and the kids beat the adults because the adults were like too calculating and they wouldn't just do it. And the kids were just like throwing it all together. And they're arguing about it, disagreeing. Mm -hmm. And you know what? I think my wireframe process is a lot like the kids, marshmallows and spaghetti noodles. That's how I, I think that's how I view it. It's like, let's just get it designed as quick as we can and make some decisions. All right, Matt, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us today. It was really interesting hearing about your story and the struggles, the successes, all that you've had. And we think that the, the listeners will certainly enjoy and learn a lot from all this. 
before we let go, is there anything you want to leave with us? Where can people reach you? Anything you want to promote or plug? I'm pretty active on Twitter. So you can find me at MDS. And if you want to check out my stuff, you can go to shiftnudge.com. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.